sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. As you flip there, um, just want to point out that if you're new to us, the reason why we're in Mark 8:27 is because we've been through Mark 1:1 through 8:26 thus far, and um, and we're continuing a series that we began over a year ago through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we took a break over the summer and we went over a f- uh, fast over the book of Judges. But now we return to Mark. We believe in sequential, exegetical preaching. So we don't choose what we're going to preach on um, other than the books we're going to be on. We preach on everything that the Lord says. Every verse in the Gospel of Mark is our goal to preach through. So our text is Mark eight twenty-seven through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. In 2010, CBS premiered a TV show that went on to be a great success with its audience. The show was called Undercover Boss. In the show, a high-ranking executive or a business owner would disguise themselves so they could blend in with the workforce, and for some time they would do the frontline jobs as they got to know the everyday operation of their businesses, and more importantly, as they got to know the men and women who worked under them. At the end of each episode, they would reveal the identity of the boss to the shock of the employees who never realized that they had been all along working alongside their bosses. The show often ended in a high emotional note as the employees would realize how good it is to not only be noticed, but to be known by those who can do something to help them. We're returning today to the Gospel of Mark. We've been in Judges since the beginning of June. And in Judges, we were reminded that Israel needed a king. As we return to Mark, by the providence of God, we'll see that in some sense, Israel still is looking for a king. But today, the identity of this king will be revealed. But in the question about Jesus' identity... Uh, But is the question of Jesus' identity really that important? I mean, we live in in a Christianized culture, don't we? We all know who Jesus is, right? I mean, when we see a picture of him, we know who he is, right? Right? 
We are church people. We're fine, aren't we? Friends, I would argue that our culture largely misunderstands and misidentifies Jesus. Even many of those who claim to be Christians do not know Christ. This is not surprising because as we have, as we have seen so far, even Jesus' disciples who spent m- much time with him misunderstood and misidentify Jesus. But we should be very careful with this question. Who is Jesus? Because to to misunderstand or misidentify Jesus is a matter of eternal life or eternal death. Jesus' work, what he did in order to save us, is intrinsically connected with his person, who he is. So if you want to receive the benefits of Jesus, of his work, you must make sure, first of all, that you know his person. In other words, and here's where I'm going with the sermon today. If you want to be a Christian, you need to know Christ as he is. And not as you want him to be. But even before we dive into our text today, let's take a few minutes to review where we are in the Gospel of Mark. If you're new to the Bible, it may be helpful for me to point out that the Bible is divided into two sections. There is the Old Testament, and then there is the New Testament. The Old Testament are the events from the creation of the universe all the way to the promises, less promises of the first coming of Jesus. The Old Testament primarily focuses on God's relationship with his chosen people, Israel, and as he promises to bless every nation through them. The New Testament, where we are today, retells the events of Jesus' birth. It begins with four Gospels, which are ancient biographies. And they highlight his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And then the New Testament goes on to explain the early history of the church, Jesus' first followers. The central figure in both Old and New Testament is Jesus Christ himself. Now we can see that very clearly in the New Testament, right? But it is true of the Old Testament as well. When Jesus indicts the scribes and Pharisees in the Gospel of John, he says, you do not believe Moses. Because if you believe Moses, you believe me because Moses wrote of me. So the central figure in all of the Bible is Christ. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a great revelation of Christ himself. So it's not surprising that the central question in the Gospel of Mark is the question of the identity of Christ. Who is Jesus? Remember, Mark has been telling us who Jesus is from the very first verse of the book. The beginning 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? The Son of God. God the Father tells us who Jesus Christ is. During his baptism, the heavens open, and he says, Mark 1.11, You are my beloved Son, in whom, in you, I am well pleased. Demons, more than anyone else, tell us who Jesus is in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1.24, Jesus is exercising a demon, and he says to him, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Again in 3.11, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. As Jesus comes to the Gentile region of Decapolis, to a city called Gadara, he meets there a demoniac, the gathering demoniac and the demon who was a legion tells Jesus, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? So clearly, those who understand the supernatural have identified Jesus correctly thus far. But humans are utterly confused about who Jesus is. The scribes, Believe that Jesus is from the devil. Mark 3.22. He is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. His family that saw him grow up, that knew him so deeply. When they saw him, they said, he is out of his mind. But what about the disciples? So much of this book is about the disciples. It's about their perception. Remember, Mark is basing his gospel on the testimony of the apostle Peter. And what Mark really wants is for us to view Jesus from the perspective of the disciples. He wants us to kind of become the 13th disciple of Jesus. The disciples spent countless hours with Jesus. Jesus was equipping these disciples to be witnesses. And yet, they simply had no clue of who Jesus really was. We've seen them question Jesus' wisdom. We've seen them doubt his power. We've seen them doubt his ability to provide for them. After Jesus calms the storm and the disciples find themselves in the boat, they look at each other terrified and ask themselves this question, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? In the second to last sermon, in the Gospel of Mark that we observed before the the summer, the disciples start grumbling about the lack of bread as they forget that Jesus is able to produce bread from nothing. He's already done that twice, but in the boats, they complain that they have no bread. So Jesus bombards them with 
series of questions. Questions that were designed to remind them of Jesus' faithfulness. And one of the questions that Jesus asks in, in Mark 8, 18 is, Having eyes, do you not see? And this question reveals the heart of Mark's literary genius. This question reveals the heart of Jesus' ministry. And the answer is no. They have eyes. But they do not see. But Jesus came to give sight to the blind. I've been thinking quite a bit about the order of the miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. The first miracle that we saw someone with a significant physical ailment be healed was back in chapter 2 when Jesus healed the paraplegic man that was taken by his four friends and, and lowered through the roof of Peter's house. That man could see and speak. He couldn't walk. But then we saw a significant miracle when Jesus heals the man in the Gentile country who could not speak or hear. And I was thinking, well, that's interesting. That seems like a more important miracle, isn't it? Because we come to faith by hearing, by hearing the gospel. So why is Jesus putting the healing of the blind in such a prominent position in the gospel? And I came to realize that the ultimate goal in our lives is not that we'll just hear the gospel, but that by hearing the gospel, we'll be led to one day see Christ. So seeing Christ is the goal of hearing the gospel. The goal of our salvation is to see Christ as he is. That's what John, the apostle John, tells us in 1 John 3 verses 1 and 2. So now we're seeing that many have come to hear, but now many are seeing Christ for who he is. Do you remember the testimony of Job at the end of the book of Job? After experiencing the loss of all things, but realizing that God is in control, he says, well, before I had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Friends, the goal of the preaching of the gospel, what we're doing here right now is we're preparing our hearts through our years to one day see Christ. That's the direction of history. That's the direction of the church. That is the goal of our lives so that we can be redeemed as we see him upon his second coming. So the last sermon we consider in the gospel of Mark, Jesus heals a blind man. But he heals him in stages. When he first heals him, the man sees men standing like trees. But then Jesus heals him again. And this time, his sight is clear. And this is a picture of what is about to happen to the disciples today. This miracle was a literal miracle, but it was also an illustration of the process that was happening in the hearts of the disciples. Peter, representing the disciples, will recognize Jesus for who he is today, the Christ, the Messiah. But another question will emerge that will catch the disciples by surprise. 
Sure, Jesus is the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah is Jesus? And throughout the second half of this book, we'll see that Christ did not come to lead a coup against Rome, to create a military, political revolution. No, Christ came to suffer. And since the disciples didn't fully understand this, Jesus tells them at the end of our text today not to share the identity of the Messiah. But today, as we dive into our text, two questions are going to emerge. And these two questions will help us outline the rest of our time. The first question is, who do people say that I am? And the second question is, who do you say that I am? So who do people say that I am? We find ourselves again traveling with Jesus in our text, in the passage before, right before this one, Jesus and his disciples went to a city called Bethsaida. Bethsaida was the hometown of at least three of his disciples. It sat northeast of the river Jordan, which sat north of the Sea of Galilee. So a very familiar territory thus far in the Gospel of Mark. You remember that virtually all of Jesus' ministry, save a few journeys to Gentile country, have so far taken place in or around the Sea of Galilee. Throughout much of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus seems to be leading his disciples somewhat aimlessly through the region of Galilee. But now they will travel north. One last time to then charge south towards Jerusalem. So the apparent aimless direction ends today. We've seen so far that Jesus and his disciples have primarily traveled by boat. Mark often refers to the boat with a definite article. Clearly a boat that was separated for the ministry of Jesus and his disciples, perhaps even Peter's boat. But now we say goodbye to the boat, and we'll see it no more. No longer will Jesus travel by boat, now he will travel by foot. They come to the city of Caesarea Philippi, not to be confused with the city of Caesarea that sits on the Mediterranean. This was a smaller city about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. This is the northernmost point of Jesus' entire ministry, and this is also the northernmost point of the territory of Israel in Jesus' time. The Gospels never record Jesus traveling north of this point. Caesarea Philippi was infamous for being a center of idolatry, including false gods like Baal and other Greek gods. And on his way to the city, Jesus asks his disciple the question, somewhat vague, not too piercing. Who do people say that I am? It's not surprising that Jesus would ask this question, his popularity was spreading like wildfire. His miracles, his teaching, the crowds, the feedings, 
But why does Jesus ask this question? Jesus can't possibly be curious to know what people think of him. First of all, Jesus doesn't care about what people think of him. Second, he's God. He knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart of men. Well, Jesus is asking this question because he wants to draw out the hearts of his disciples. So Jesus is using this question for teaching purposes. Basically, he asks this question, asks this question so that he can hear from the disciples' mouths who he is not. People who don't know Jesus are always wrong on their conclusions about Jesus. There's a sense in which Jesus is distancing himself from, from popular opinion. The opinion of the majority does not determine the truth of Christ. Have you ever noticed that people who do not center their understanding of Christ in the Bible end up coming up with a Christ that looks just like them? Christ is a Democrat. Christ is a Republican. He's a Marxist. He's a capitalist. Christ is a teacher. He's a miracle worker. Christ is just like me. Notice the answer to the question in verse 28. Who do people say that Jesus is? John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophets. We already heard these comparisons before, so clearly these were common assumptions about Jesus. In chapter 6, King Herod believes that Jesus is the reincarnation of John the Baptist, and we hear that others believe that Jesus is Elijah or a prophet. These are incredible figures. John the Baptist was the greatest born of a woman. Elijah never experienced death. And one like him would be the precursor of the Messiah. The coming of one like Elijah would indicate that the last days were imminent. Ever since Moses foretold that a prophet like him would come, Israel has been looking for that prophet. But as wonderful and amazing as these categories are, None of them are adequate descriptions of Jesus. Because Jesus stands in a category of his own, unmatched, unrivaled. Jesus is not merely a great man. He is God. So he doesn't fit into pre-existing categories. Jesus is new wine. And he will not fit into old wineskins. I was sharing the gospel once with a Jewish friend, and he said Jesus was a Jewish rabbi and nothing more. The Jesus you worship is a construct of the Apostle Paul. Well, he thinks he knows Jesus, but he's wrong. One time I was playing soccer with a recent Iraqi refugee, and at the end of the game, we lingered for hours as I shared the gospel with him. But he said, I believe Jesus, 
for he is nothing more than a prophet. Well, he thinks he knows Jesus, but he's wrong. But what about us? Do we know Jesus accurately? What about evangelicals? What about self-proclaiming Christians that live around us, that sit next to us? What about us? Are we getting Jesus right? Every two years, Ligonier Ministries puts out a survey on the state of theology, and they ask simple questions about the Christian faith to evangelicals, to people like us. In 2022, a question was asked about Jesus. The question was this. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Do you agree or disagree? 43% of evangelicals agreed. If Jesus were to ask his disciples the question, what does the evangelical church in America say that I am, they would say, we don't know, but they certainly do not believe you are God. We live in the postmodern world, and often our culture wants us to think of identity as fluid. We determine identity, our own and that of others. Truth centers around us. You can be anything you want, but we know that this is not how identity works. Sure, we can be shaped by our life experiences, circumstances, upbringing, but at the core, we are who God determines us to be. So our identity is not malleable, but it's assigned to us by God. Identities are to be discovered. And this is how we must approach Jesus. And one time, I was at a youth retreat. As a youth, I once was a youth, by the way. And the youth leader asked a group of us to answer the question, Who are you? And I remember struggling to answer that question because every time I attempted to answer the question, I answered with things that I did rather with things that I was. And after me, another youth answered the question so winsomely. So he so clearly rooted his identity in the fact that he was created by God and redeemed by Christ. God determines who we are, so when it comes to Christ, we must discover who he is according to the word of God. Christ is not shaped after our opinions. Christ is who he says he is. And friends, this question is so important. Don't miss it. Christ's identity is not up for debate. Christ's identity is not formed by opinions. Christ's identity comes to us through revelation. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, he, is, he does not subscribe to our opinions of Him. And what you think of Christ matters because knowing Christ is the goal of your life. 
Knowing Christ is more important than your work, than your money, than your family, even your life. And you can only know Christ by counting all other things as nothing. Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Jesus is going to turn to his disciples now and ask them, Who do you say that I am? And as we dive into this question, this is a great time for us to evaluate our own answer to the identity of Christ. So who do you say that I am? This is a piercing question that cannot be avoided. For Jesus, there was no room for lukewarm disciples. No one could stand indifferently to this question of identity. Who do you say that I am? People often feel comfortable with certain categories for Jesus. He was a moral teacher. He was a religious guru. He was a miracle worker. But the answer Jesus requires of us, and of his disciples, is much greater than this. C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, once said, Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher he, was, he has not left that open to us. There Lewis argues that according to Jesus' claims, he could only be a liar, a lunatic, or the Son of God. But his disciples knew that Jesus was not a liar or a lunatic. They knew that his teaching wasn't just moral. He taught with exousia, with authority. Authority from above, authority that they had never seen before. He taught not as a mere teacher, deriving their authority from another. You know, I've heard it said that Jesus is the law of Moses. And that's where his authority comes from. That's not true. Jesus is the lawgiver. And that's why he has authority. You may have heard the illustration of someone that comes before a judge and has to pay a penalty for a crime that they've committed. And the judge then pulls out his own wallet and pays for the penalty itself. Jesus is that judge. Oh, Jesus is so much greater than the judge. Jesus is the one who determines the law. Judges only enforce the law. Jesus is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. Jesus, morality flows from Jesus. Jesus is not merely moral. Morality is the outflow of his character. Authority was native to Jesus' heart. Not only that, the disciples saw that men with legions 
of demons were delivered by Christ. They saw Jesus walk on water. They saw Jesus cause the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the blind to see. They saw Jairus' daughter, lifeless, dead, and life returned to her little body once Jesus touched her. They saw the raging seas, hear the voice of their master, and obey and be still. Who then is this? They asked. They've been able to evade this question, the answer to this question, for four chapters now. But now it's time to answer. You've walked alongside me. You've seen my authority. You've seen my power. Now you must answer. Who do you say that I am? A more literal translation of Jesus' question here would actually put the stress on the word you. In the Greek language, the pronouns sometimes don't have to appear because they are already made explicit in the verb. But Mark gives us this sentence with the pronoun. And the pronoun is the first thing that we see. So listen to how this question could be translated more literally. You, however, who do you say that I am? Not others, not the world, not philosophers, not the scribes, not the Pharisees, not the priests, not your parents, not your college professor, not your pastor, but you. Who do you say that I am? Children, who do you say that Jesus is? You know that the answer that your parents give is good for your parents. But you need to answer this question as well. Who do you say that Jesus is? I was talking to my son just this week, and I asked him, Boaz, do you love Jesus? And he said, I do. He said, we love Jesus. And I said, that's good. And I thought, I will keep watching your hearts. Children, you need to answer the question, who is Jesus? The you here is plural. Who do you all say that I am? Jesus is addressing his disciples. So Peter, representing his disciples, answers with great insight. By the revelation of the Spirit, you are the Christ. And finally, his identity is revealed eight chapters later. The Greek word Christos is the Hebrew word Messiah, which more literally means to anoint. So the concept of anointing is very important for the identity of Christ. Anointing was a ceremony that would set one apart for the work of God through his Spirit. We see three offices in the Old Testament that received anointing prophet, priest and, priest, and king. Perhaps most importantly, Israel expected the Messiah, the anointed one, to come as a king. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king. And he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. 
So when Peter says, you are the Christ, he is not just ascribing a title to Jesus. He is saying, you are the king we've all been waiting for. You are our hope. You are the one. You are the one who will fulfill all of the promises of God. The Jews expected a Messiah who was a man and would strengthen them politically, militarily, even religiously. But Jesus was so much more than that. Jesus, the Christ, is the eternally begotten Son of God, equally divine with the Father and the Spirit. Along with the Father and the Spirit, Christ devised the plan of redemption before the foundation of the world. Jesus, the Christ, is the agent of creation. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. But not only is Christ the agent of creation, he currently sustains the universe with the word of his might. Jesus, the Christ, is the promised seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent as he triumphed over him on the cross. Jesus, the Christ was the ark that allowed Noah and his family to navigate safely through the waters of judgment of God as the world perished. Jesus, the Christ, was the one whose day Abraham saw and rejoiced. And before Abraham existed, Jesus already was eternally. He is the great I am. Jesus, the Christ was the reproach that Moses preferred over the blessings and benefits of the house of Pharaoh. Jesus, the Christ, was the rock that led Israel through the desert, who granted them water and provision. Christ was the serpent that was lifted in the desert for the salvation of all who would lift their eyes and look to him. Jesus, the Christ, was the Passover lamb that Israel ate Hurried and yet trusting in the covering of the blood. Jesus, the Christ, is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and of the temple. As God in olden days concealed his glory in a tent, now he reveals his glory in his Son, in whom dwells the fullness of God. Jesus, the Christ, is the rest that the promised land could not afford. Jesus, the Christ, is David's greater Son who sits on his throne eternally who rules and reigns with justice and equity and who not only delivers his people from the enemies at their gates but delivers his people from the enemies in their hearts jesus the christ is the servant the prophets spoke of the suffering service servant the one who came to die for his people the one who came to give up his life to defeat sin he would carry on his shoulders the guilt and condemnation that should have rested on his people. Jesus, the Christ, is the sign of the prophet Jonah, who for three days was as good as dead in the belly of a great fish, but by the will of God saw the light of day again to proclaim a message of salvation through judgment and grace. So, no, Jesus is not just a moral teacher. He is not simply a religious guru. He is not just a miracle worker. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, 
The question directed at his disciples is now directed at you. Who do you say that Jesus is? The question is unavoidable because Jesus demands the answer. Oh, friend, and the fact that this question is being posed before you today is a gift from God. We're blind to the reality of Jesus. But you heard today that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God who came to dwell among us. So, who do you say that Jesus is? Oh, friend, this question is an invitation for you to discover the creator of the universe. Not as you fashion him, but as he reveals himself to you. The question is an invitation for you to trust. For you to trust his sacrifice. The question is an invitation for you to look upon him and say, I could do nothing to make myself be right before God. But he, who is God, has done it all for me. This question is an invitation for you to repent from your sins and believe the gospel. So friend, who do you say that Jesus is? Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you because your word is so clear on who Jesus is. Thank you, Father, that we know that Jesus is not a mere man. Were Jesus a mere man, we would be doomed because his sacrifice would not be enough. But Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. And because he is your Son, his sacrifice was sufficient for us. Thank you, Lord, for Christ. Father, may we respond to this revelation of Jesus as the Christ with faith today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.